interviewing your favorite musicians, comedians, and other creative souls. This is the Carrie Edelman Show. Adam Mamawawa is going to be joining us today. He is an amazing comedian, writer, and podcaster, and he's also an actor. Um, before I bring him on, I'd also like to do a brief introduction to the show. My show has had some amazing entertainers on, and the purpose of my show is to really bring people on in the entertainment industry and give them a really in-depth life story to let my guests understand who they are, what their backgrounds are, and specifically to promote them. I really want to help them get their names out there. We know how challenging the entertainment industry can be, especially with the unfortunate pandemic that hopefully we're slowly coming out of right now. So he's going to join some amazing guests that I've had, including comedian and head writer uh, Peter Melman for Seinfeld, New York Times bestselling author Jennifer Keshen Armstrong. I've had on comedians Tom Cotter, John DiDomenico, um, award-winning journalist Mike Sager, and the list goes on. So please check them out. All of my podcasts are available on iTunes and iHeartRadio. Before I bring them on, I also do a brief introduction. Um, my background is in psychology. I always throw this out there. But my show is an entertainment show. We're not doing any therapy. We're not doing any type of um, analysis on the show. But we might talk about things in an educational format. So I do like to throw that out there in a very general format to just, you know, help people understand stuff. I think that's really important. So let's do an introduction for Adam, and then we will bring him on. All right. So as I mentioned, Adam Amalala is a stand-up comedian, actor, and podcaster. He's based out of New York City. He has appeared on Comedy Central, MTV, DET, and SiriusXM, to name a few. His comedy album, One of the Good Ones, debuted at number one on the iTunes comedy charts. He's also a freelance contributor to Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update and some e-cards. And lastly, he currently hosts two podcasts, including Away Games and Horse, and which was recently featured in the New York Times. So check him out. Follow him on Instagram and all the social media pages at Adam Mamawala. And you can also go to his website, which is AdamMamawala.com. All right, Adam, how Hello. are you? <laughs> Hello. I'm good. How are you doing? <laughs> good. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope the introduction did you some justice. <laughs> yes. No, it was perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So, um, yeah, so let's start out. I always like to, we'll get into a little bit later on talking about the pandemic and just, I know, fortunately, which is mm -hmm. great for you, I saw that you recently had some shows and some upcoming shows, which is awesome that you guys are able to get back out there and do your thing, so to speak. Um, yeah. But to start out, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your background. Tell me a little bit before we delve into you moving to New Jersey. Um, what it was like growing up as a kid in Aurora, Illinois, which I know is also the setting of Wayne's World, which is kind of ironic <laughs> since you became a comedian. Um, so yeah, exactly. Tell us a little bit about yeah. yeah, when you were really little, you know, what you can remember, three, four, five years old, you know, what were you like as a kid? And start to tie in some of this stuff about comedy, writing, acting, how some of those interests started to flourish uh, early on. Sure. Um, so, yeah, my, my mom, my dad is from India. He was born and raised in India um, and somehow found his way to uh, Wisconsin, which is where he got his MBA. Um, and the town that he ended up moving to where he went, he got his MBA um, is Whitewater, Wisconsin, which is where my mom grew up. So they met in Wisconsin. My sister was born in, in Wisconsin. She's three years older than me. And then we moved to Illinois, uh, like between when she was born and when I was born. So, yeah, my memory of Illinois is uh, I wouldn't say sparse. I mean, that was obviously, those are very formative years. Um, we were in kind of a, a small, like 
ranch style home in a, in a tiny little town in, uh, in Illinois. And I have, I have very good memories from that time in my life. Um, it was a very like tight knit loving family. Like we didn't have a lot of money, but I don't think we ever like wanted for anything. Um, and as it pertains to what I ended up doing with my life, I, I feel like from the time I was very little, um, I never felt stifled in any way. And I think that's really important for people who end mm-hmm. up being creatives. Um, sometimes I think being creative is born out of being told that you should not be that way. I think in my case, it was something that was really cultivated by my parents and, and just kind of the environment that I was raised in, which is like everybody was laughing a lot and joking a lot. And it was always very much encouraged to get up in front of people. I come from a family that's like very, that's very musical. So there was a lot of singing, a lot of music in the house. Um, and I think from the time I was little, I was always like very comfortable in front of people. Like I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't describe myself as having been a ham when I was younger or really at any age. Okay. I think I've always been a little more reserved. Um, like I still get that now if I'm out in a social setting and someone introduces me, it's like, oh yeah, it's my friend Adam. He's a stand-up comedian. I think sometimes I don't live up to what people's perception of that would be, which is like someone who's very, you know, who's a class clown or who's very outgoing. Um, but yeah, I like it was a very nice childhood. My all my mom's family lived in the Midwest, so there was a lot of like seeing seeing her family and and being around people like that. And uh, yeah, I right. think that's that's really my so, memory of it. And also from the time I was little, my parents exposed me to a lot of comedy without me even knowing it. Like a lot of really old, like you know Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Laurel and Hardy and even like the old little rascals cartoons and stuff like that. And I love Lucy. Like I remember watching all of that as a kid and I feel like just through osmosis that kind of got into my brain somehow or another. Yeah. So no, thank you for setting the stage, no pun intended, um, with your family. So like you said, they were definitely exposing the comedy. Now you're interesting and we'll pull in your parents a little bit with, of course, what you feel comfortable Mm -hmm. sharing. Um, Your mom went to University of Wisconsin, right, where she was studying art history. So she definitely had some type of a background, right, in in art. Mm -hmm. Um, And what about your dad? What did he get his MBA in? Well, he uh, he was in the business world, so he got his uh, master's in in business um, and then ended up working in in, uh, sales for a while and then more of like a leadership position. He worked for MetLife for a long time and then Mass Mutual. Oh, nice. Um, So all kind of like in the insurance world. But, um, yeah, like he he loves, loves, loves music. Like music was always a big thing in our house. We would go to these – there was like a whole community of people in Illinois where we would go to these like Indian music parties, and that was a a big part of – my childhood. And then my mom, like, she's the kind of person who, like, in another timeline where she didn't get married or didn't start a family, like, she absolutely would have been somebody who was, like, an art history professor at a college or, like, a docent at a museum or whatever the proper word would be for that. But um, she she's the sort of person who just has this, like, incredibly wide range of knowledge of a lot of things, like to the point where we, mm-hmm. my sister and I encouraged her to like try to be on Jeopardy because she, she's that person who, if you're watching Jeopardy wow. after the news, you're like, <laughs> how do you know all of these, like where, right, what right. part of your brain is that stored in that you like know about these paintings by Edward Manet, but you also know about like the Byzantine empire and baseball statistics, like, you know, so just a very, like both of my parents, I think are very impressive people. Yeah, no, definitely. Very interesting backgrounds with both of them. And I even saw your mom had designed some, um, and we'll get into more of you in a second, the 
some of the masks that you had during the pandemic, and they were great. <laughs> like I was looking at some of the. No, it was really creative, yeah. and they were they were really cool. Yeah, so so definitely yeah. a talented family, like you said in the background. Um, mm-hmm. So was it? Would you say? I mean, I know that when you were growing up and you got into high school, you were definitely involved in some, you know, acting and plays and singing. What would you say, which Mm -hmm. came first or did they all kind of come together when you were younger? Like you said, this is a musical family. You guys were listening to music Was singing something that came first. You making people laugh or was it kind of all parallel to each other, so to speak, where those stuff was kind of just combining with each other? Yeah, I think, you know, music was definitely first. And and I think a lot of it for me, at least in my involvement in like high school with that had to had to do with what my sister was doing. Um, My sister's three years older than me. So it was like, we went to the same high school, we went to the same college. So in both cases, Mm -hmm. like when she was a senior, I was a freshman. And I just kind of knew about that world, because that's what she was really into. Like she was in choir, she was in musicals. Um, and, and very involved in that world. And so it just kind of, I, I could always sing and it kind of came naturally to like uh, get involved in that way. Like I, it's, it's, there's no way of knowing, but like, I'm not sure if I would have been as inclined to have an interest in that, if not for the fact that I had like seen how much fun my sister had doing it. Right. Um, right. But yeah, like comedy, comedy as far as like stand up never even occurred to me. Like that, I, I remember there being kids here and there in, in high school who would like, at a coffee house or at a talent show be doing stand-up. And even then, it wasn't ever something that I was like, oh, maybe I could do that. But I do think that I right. was always somebody who, like, was very quick. Like, that, if you if you were to see me, like, interact with my family or, or with my friends, there's always that very, like, kind of quick way of speaking and people, you know, just making little little jokes and little jabs, like very much the way you would observe comedians talking in a green room. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was always kind of the, the speed of the conversation in my household. Um, and I remember even like in class, I was always, I was never the class clown at all, but I was definitely the person who, if there was an opportunity to make a joke about something or to like say something sarcastic, that was kind of what I gravitated towards. So I think it was this combination of like through doing choir and doing musicals, I figured out how to be comfortable in front of people. And then the comedic timing and all of that was just kind of inherent. Interesting. And with these choirs and musicals, were you also doing it as a kid in elementary school, like before you moved to New Jersey? Were you involved in this when you were in Illinois, no, or no? Was it more no, when you never, moved here? No. Yeah, no, never. It wasn't until I was in high school that I was actually in, like, choir in any sort of organized way. But um, like I said, okay. we would go to these these music parties, and it was, um, even though right. it's just in somebody's basement, you're, you're singing in front of like 50 strangers. And as a seven or mm-hmm. eight year old, like that's kind of intimidating. So I think that kind of took the edge off in terms of getting over any, any stage fright. And even I remember in middle school and particularly in high school, like I was kind of by default, that person who like, if there was a group presentation, I was always the person who was going to be leading that. Like I was just, it was something that I always felt very comfortable doing was getting up uh, in front of people. And, and it's interesting because I, I wouldn't say I was always like the most confident person. Like I had like some, you know, weight issues and didn't always like love how I, I looked at that time in my life, but I was always very, very comfortable like with public speaking and that continued okay. through, through college. And, and then in college, I also, it was this weird thing where I was like starting to get into stand up. I was also playing a sport. I played tennis and then I was in an acapella group and I was, I, I was involved in all these different worlds. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I know for, yeah. let's digress for a second, for tennis. I mean, and you're 
we have something mm-hmm. in common. I played tennis throughout high school and, and college. Um, I mean, yeah. you're a fantastic player. I checked out some of your videos. So, yeah, tell us a little <laughs> bit about just tying that in. Did you start playing as a little kid? Or, again, was that something you delved into a little later in life? No, I got into that a bit later. I was always uh, – I always loved sports, which is interesting because, like, I don't mm-hmm. necessarily come from a background where there were sports on in our house. Like, my mom – followed sports growing up but didn't play and then my dad like ran track and played field hockey which is like not even a sport that men play in America um right but in any case yeah I I was always like a pretty reasonably athletic kid I was super into basketball like ba- playing basketball was my entire life from the time I was in like second or third grade through middle school and then as I started to kind of like reach my <laughs> my peak with with like how good I was going to be as a basketball player I started getting more into tennis, but never in any sort of intense way. I would like do summer camps for a couple of weeks. And then once I was in high school and I was actually on the high school team, I got more and more into it. Um, and then ended up, I was kind of like a fringe, like walk on level player in college. So I ended up running the club team, which is like kind of JV for college level. Okay. Okay. And with tennis, what did you, did you play both singles and doubles or did you prefer one over the other? Um, I mean, it wasn't really up to me. It was kind of like I went to a school that um, it was a big school in New Jersey, and we ended up I, we were like second in the state uh, my junior year. So it was a we were a very very good tennis program. So as a result of that, I only ever played doubles. Like there were only three three single spots gotcha. on the entire team, so I was never right. one of those those top three um, players. So yeah, I played I played a lot more doubles. I'm just I'm more comfortable playing doubles like I'm 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 good at tennis but I think because I only Mm -hmm. ever really play doubles I don't know how to like construct a singles point so I anytime I play singles it's always this like feeling of I know I'm better than this person but they know how to actually win more than I do like there's more strategy in place there gotcha Mm -hmm. cool well thank you for tying that in and with the basketball really if you want to pull that in now I know you host two podcasts um, since we're talking mm-hmm. about sports, and then we'll start delving more into your um, stand-up comedy and eventually going to college in New Jersey and all that stuff. Um, tell us a yeah. little bit about those that you host. I know you host one. Let me get to my notes here because they're buried down in this other area of my uh, notes. Hold on one second here. But you, ho- you host one called Horse with uh, Mike Schubert, and then mm-hmm. you host another one called Away Games with uh, comedian Kevin McCaffrey. So, yeah, just give us a little, you know, plug those ones that you do, you know, how did you meet each of those guys and start each of these podcasts? I know they're based on, they're both based on basketball. Uh, one's baseball, one's basketball. If I'm correct. So, um, yeah, so Away Games is a, it's, it's very niche. It's a, it's a Chicago Cubs podcast. Uh, we talk a lot about baseball in general, but it's, it's primarily a Chicago Cubs podcast. And uh, exactly. I know Kevin through the New York comedy scene. Like he's been on Letterman. He's, you know, he's a very successful guy. Um, he's been mm-hmm. on TV a lot, a lot of, a lot of like, big writing jobs. And he and I and this other comedian, Ken Schultz, um, kind of formed a friendship around our love of the Chicago Cubs. Like, it's a unique thing when you're in a place like New York to find people who are equally passionate about a baseball team that is halfway across the country. So we, right. <laughs> we were always friendly, and we, we always kind of had this, like, ongoing group chat going, and we would hang out and watch games. And at a certain point, I uh, Ken actually had, was moving back to Chicago, but I – talked to Kevin and I was like, you know, we, we spent so much of our lives talking about this just in our free time, like might not be a terrible idea to do it into microphones and see if anybody is into it. Um, and our angle specifically was that like, there are a lot of baseball podcasts, there are a lot of Cubs podcasts even, but there aren't any that are like specifically hosted by people who are professionally funny. 
So our goal was like, can we talk about baseball and be really knowledgeable about it, but do it in a way that's different than people just talking about stats and talking about numbers and that sort of thing. So that's, I mean, we have a fairly modest following for that, but the people who are into it are really into it. And it's like, we would be doing this anyway, so we might as well uh, release it for people. And what, one thing that was kind of cool is that during lockdown last year, we were able to interview a lot of players because people who ordinarily would never have had time for us all of a sudden had right. nothing to do. So we were, we've interviewed like probably about 10 players over the past year. Um, and even That's later awesome. today, actually, we have a, an interview with a, with an ESPN reporter. So we've, we've been able to like pull some pretty good guests for that. And then um, with horse, I, that is something that I was brought into last year. So Mike Schubert is a, a friend of mine who I've known, I guess, since I was like 19 and he was 15. I actually taught him tennis. That's how I, I first met him was oh, wow, I was a cool. tennis instructor at this camp and he was uh he was there with another another kid Chris and like they were the only two kids who were like old enough that I could actually like you know BS with them and and like be be friendly with them and so long story short uh Mike is a very successful podcaster he hosts a show called Potterless which is like the I think the biggest Harry Potter podcast that exists um so he's oh, like wow, a, cool. you know, a podcaster professionally and he started this podcast called horse with, uh, with Eric silver. And the whole idea was they wanted to make basketball accessible to people who are not basketball fans, because a lot of the people who listen to this Harry Potter podcast and the, the other podcasts on this network are people who are like not into sports at all. So the idea was how can we talk about basketball in a way where we're talking more about like the stories involved versus what LeBron James averaged in a playoff series. So that's the whole angle is like, we're doing more more like human interest stories. Like we, we did one recently that was about like Dennis Rodman having a weird friendship with Kim Jong-un or like just things that are very kind of bizarre. And we, we focus on that. So um, yeah, I, I started doing that almost a year ago. I guess I, his, his co-host had other things that he needed to, to focus on. So I joined down with Mike last summer. Um, I guess we've probably done like 20 episodes together, something like that. And we got like a little write-up in the New York Times, which is really cool. And um, there's a there's a pretty pretty solid following for that. So it's been fun to like jump into something where there was already somewhat of an established audience. Yeah, no, congratulations. That's great. Really, really cool Thanks. stuff. And it's, Thank you. You know, I think it's so cool how, you know, I, if you want to use the word eclectic, you are because as we delve into your career and everything you're doing, I think it's so neat to see someone who has his hands in a different, a lot of different things and your comedy can cross mm-hmm. over to that stuff. And I don't think all comedians necessarily, you know, lots of comedians often see, I'm not saying everyone, but you know, that stand up is where it's at. You got to do stand up when there's so many other niches and things right. that you guys can actually get involved in and contribute to. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just yeah. really yeah, cool. Something about you. Um, yeah. No, that stands you. out. You're welcome. Thanks. Okay, so yeah, tell us a little bit about what's progressed to what led to you moving, um, you know, you and your family moving from Aurora, Illinois to, if I have it correct, Hillsborough, New Jersey, you know, around when you mm-hmm. were, I guess, about nine years old. What led to that, you know, move and, and how was that transition for you? Um, it, it was really, it was, it was, just came down to my dad's job. Like he was, he was working for MetLife and he was in a position in Illinois, to my understanding that like, he was only going to get so far if we stayed in that area. Um, and moving to New Jersey was an opportunity to really like kind of up his salary pretty significantly and just, mm-hmm. you know, provide a better life for us. Because my, when, when we were little, my mom did not work. 
so we were we were reliant on his salary and um, it was a combination of him having a really good opportunity it kind of being that right time before my sister and I got like too established in the way that like you know if you uproot your kids in the middle of high school it's going to have some sort of effect on them socially whereas I was in fourth grade my sister was in seventh grade so like yes it was somewhat disruptive but like we were still young enough that it's easy it's easy to make new friends when you're in fourth grade uh, in, in a way that's not the same if you were in, uh, you know, a junior in high school. So, right. um, yeah, we we moved uh, in 1996. And the other thing, too, is that the area that we were in Illinois, I wouldn't say it was dangerous. It's it definitely, like, gotten worse since we left. But where we would have ultimately gone to high school, um, like, there was a lot of gang violence, and there was, you know, it would not have been wow. an ideal place for us to have gone to school. And Conversely, mm-hmm. when we moved to New Jersey, uh, that was like a big focal point for my parents was like, what is, what is an area we can move that has like really, really good schools? So Hillsborough is, is a place where the public schools are, uh, are, are very, very good. So I think ultimately it was, it was the right move. Um, I know it was, it was definitely hard on my mom because all of her family's in the Midwest and, you know, moving to New Jersey as an adult, especially at this time she wasn't working. So you know, now she works in a school, so obviously there's a community she has there. But I think at that time it was it was probably pretty tough for her to not really know anybody or or have much of a means to get to know people sure. other than like you know my my friends' parents or my sister's parents. But as far as myself and my sister, I don't remember it being that hard. Um, like it was, I remember my parents telling us that we we're moving to New Jersey and not even having like a concept of what that meant. Like I, I, I was aware that New Jersey was a state. I thought it was like somewhere on the East coast, but beyond that as a nine-year-old, I was like, okay. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have much of a sense of what my life would be like there, but I feel like I, you know, I settled in pretty quickly. We also benefited from the fact that the neighborhood we moved into, there were a lot of kids that were of a similar age. So I feel like we, assimilated pretty quickly in that way. And yeah, it didn't, I, I don't think it took too long for us to both start feeling pretty comfortable in New Jersey. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, thank you for yeah. sharing that. Cause I mean, that was definitely a transition to come from Illinois to here, but as you said, the age range probably was a good age range for you guys to, you know, have an easier adjustment than if it was a little later on. Um, now you said real yeah. quick, you said, and we'll get into eventually you getting into college and getting into stand up. It was your sister. What does she do today? Is she involved in entertainment in any way? Since you said that she was very involved in singing in choirs and plays. No. So she, um, she, she's kind of gone about it in a way that's arguably the more responsible way, which is that she has always worked more kind of like standard jobs, but has also kept that like artistic flame alive in the sense that she she actually lives in Florida now, but um, she, before COVID, was, like, very involved in the local theater there, um, and, and while she's been, she lived in New York for a long time, and she's largely worked in nonprofits, so she worked for Teach for America right out of college, then she worked for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is, like, the charitable arm of J&J. Um, nice. she, yeah. uh, she got her master's at Baruch in public administration. She actually worked in the mayor's office. So she worked in city hall for a couple of years. And now she works cool. for a, uh, a company called venture. Well, which is uh, based out of Amherst mass. And it's like very involved in um, like women in STEM. It's like, it's very, it's like very cool work that they're, that they're doing. So she's, yeah. she's like wow. an exceedingly smart and impressive person. 
um, but has also okay. like always stayed stayed creative. Um, I remember her in New York taking like screenwriting class for the hell of it, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of a, a cool balance that she has. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So with you, like you said, when you were let's say getting to the end of high school. What were some of the colleges you were considering? You know, like you said, you had a background in choir and plays. Um, and what mm-hmm. did you think about, like, in high school, what you were eventually going to do? Did you have any ideas of what you might want to do, like get involved in acting before you started to apply to college, or you were just kind yeah. of feeling yourself out, so to speak? No, it, it honestly out? was not even a thought. Like, it, it never – when I was in high school, I don't think there was even, a like, a moment where I considered that I would be an entertainer. Like, it just – For whatever reason, like, I I think I even at that time, at least as far as singing was concerned, kind of knew my limitations where I was like, yeah, I'm like, I have a good voice, but I don't have a voice of someone who's going to be a professional singer. Um, And so I, at the time, and and I guess early on in college, I I think I fathomed that I would work in sports in some capacity, like sports was what I was really passionate about. So um, I think in my head, as a lot of people, and I think particularly males do, it's just like, well, I like sports, so like, let maybe that can be a job, but not really knowing like what that would entail or what how you would fit into that um to that field. But yeah, it was not. Did real quick and sorry to interrupt, but did you think of I know no, you majored okay. in communications and PR? Were you mm-hmm. thinking of potentially maybe doing broadcasting again? You have a great delivery. You got a great tone in your voice. Like you said, you were a singer. Um, you clearly have right. the ability to get up in front of people. Was that something that crossed your mind weirdly no I, and I don't know okay. why I think there was a point in college where where I thought to myself like oh maybe I could be like a news anchor or or do something like along those lines um but yeah for some reason broadcasting never really even occurred to me and it was more I think my angle was more like oh maybe I could do like PR or marketing for for a sports team uh or, or that sort of thing so yeah, as far as okay. how I w- landed on the College of New Jersey, again, it, uh, my sister having gone there was a big influence right. because since she was there, I would go like visit her at school and I was familiar with the campus and she just absolutely loved it. And I, so I ended up doing early admission there and I would have applied to other colleges, but my parents basically had an arrangement with us, which was if you go to a public school in state, like we will cover your education if you choose wow. to go elsewhere, like you are, you can do that, but you are going to be responsible for covering the difference, which okay. looking at it as an adult, that seems like a perfectly reasonable deal. At the time, I mm-hmm. feel like I was kind of bent out of shape about it. Like, oh, this isn't fair. Because, you know, people people where we grew up uh, in Hillsborough, it's a reasonably wealthy area. And I was mm-hmm. friends with a lot of people who were like applying to 40 schools just for the hell of it. And, and I remember feeling a little frustrated because, just for pride's sake, if nothing else, I feel, I feel like it would have been nice to be like, oh, yeah, I got into Cornell or whatever it was, just so you can, like, right. talk about it to your friends. Um, sure. But, yeah, my so my sister, I think she was, like, the salutatorian out of, like, 500 kids. So she, she got a full ride to TCNJ. Wow. And then I mm-hmm. got a pretty pretty sizable uh, academic scholarship. So, um yeah, we I guess my, my parents right. and my sister and I made out okay. It certainly It was certainly nice to not have like student loan debt coming out of college. I know. Yeah. I mean, you hear about what people have today and it's just, I mean, especially with the the rates are of colleges today compared to, you know, like you're saying like 10 years ago or whatever it was. Yeah. It's tremendous. Right. So yeah, yeah. Well, congrats with that. 
Um, so as you said, like you said, you're involved in tennis in college, you're involved in, you know, singing, the, the choir. Let's start to tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about, you know, who was this friend that, you know, in your freshman year, I guess you said that you, I was reading about, you know, you were kind of turned on to comedy, you know, it was the first time mm-hmm. you really considered doing it. You know, who was this friend that turned you on and, and got you to, or if you just decided to go to the stress factory and, and do an open mic night and tell us a little bit about that experience and who that person was that, you know, tried to push you a little bit. Sure. Um, so he's like my, my best friend from, from childhood, really. Like he was my closest friend in, in middle school. And we kind of, we, we didn't hang out as much in high school, but we always kind of maintained a friendship um, predicated on sports. Like his, his dad always got hooked up with all these free tickets for, I, I don't even know what exactly he did, but we would always get free tickets to, to Nets games and baseball games and whatever. And so, um, yeah, we were at a New Jersey Nets game, and I, I guess what was happening was that throughout the game at various times, I was just, like, commenting on certain things or observing certain things. And at mm-hmm. some point, he kind of mentioned, like, I, I just, like, I feel like you, you talk like a stand-up comedian. And I didn't really know what he meant by that. And he was, like, just, like, the cadence and, like, the way that you, like, observe things, It's very it sounds very much like, comedy like i i wonder if that would be something that would be that you would be good at um and i you know i'm probably wildly paraphrasing what the conversation was but that was that's my memory of it was that he kind of like planted that seed and i was like yeah like it was almost this thing of like how did how had i never thought of this before like if i'm somebody who's good at public speaking i am like comfortable Mm -hmm. in front of people and i'm funny it's amazing that i wouldn't have put those pieces together and said, like, oh, maybe this is something that I would try. But I think it also coincided with me getting more into watching stand-up comedy and, like, knowing more about that that world anyway. So, like, and it was very much the kind of, like, basics that you would expect of someone at that age, which is, like, I was listening to, like, Dane Cook, and then, like, someone, right. a friend of mine introduced me to Mitch Hedberg, and that, like, just made my brain explode. And I, like, there were, I was getting exposed <laughs> to all these different things, this also coincided with when Chappelle's show had, had really taken off. And I mean, I, I honestly, I think Chappelle's show like ch- changed my brain chemistry. Like, but I would say like Chappelle's show and then, and watching Monty Python as a kid were the two things that like, just like blew my head open in terms of right, wow. just knowing that that was something that a person could do and that you could be that like irreverent and, and funny. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I remember that, at that time I like wrote down a couple ideas that I had from that game. And I started like building a set where the, the focal point was like talking about going to a basketball game. And I eventually worked it up to like a five minute set. And I went to an open mic at the stress factory in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey. And of course, because mm-hmm. I wanted to do well, I like made sure that I had a bunch of friends come and watch me so that even if I bombed, everybody would, you know, laugh out of pity. Wow. And right. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember it going well. Um, I, I have no doubt that if I were to see see that footage now, if it existed, I would be like, oh, I'm, I'm horrible. But I was at least good enough that it made me want to do it more. And then I, I started seeking out opportunities to do that in college, which at a place like the College of New Jersey, there weren't really people doing stand-up comedy in a way that, say, if I had gone to NYU, I'm sure there would have been like other people doing it. So it kind of became right. something that I was known for, and I liked that. I, I think, like, that it, it also coincided with me kind of coming out of my shell and being a little more confident in a way that I hadn't been before. 
and like stand up and, and being good at stand up and having that as part of my identity started to become something that I like really liked about myself. Right. No, yeah. I mean, definitely. That's just really cool in terms of, like you said, I mean, just like you said, sometimes, and I think it's interesting in life, like sometimes people point things out and you're like, why didn't I think of that? Like all these things are kind of right, right there in front of me, but it's just sometimes you need that kind of objective outside person to feed you some additional stuff that you just might not have just put together for some reason, even though it's so mm-hmm. obvious. Um, right. Yeah. So like you said, yeah, you were definitely getting some traction at the College of New Jersey. Um, you were a finalist mm-hmm. at Catch a Rising Stars Comedy Challenge, right, in 2006. And then you also mm-hmm. had an opportunity to win uh, New Jersey Comedy Festival, right, where you won that entire competition and got some money yeah. and a trip to Cancun. So, mm-hmm. yeah, tell us a little bit about, now, you know, those things. And then as you're starting to come to the end of your college career, and I mean, being in college, not you know what I mean? Not when you go on tour and get involved in all this mm-hmm. comedy stuff with the college circuit. Mm-hmm. You know, what was transpiring as you're starting to get towards graduating College of New Jersey and, and where you're going to be going, considering all these great things are happening for you? Right. So, yeah, the, the Catch a Rising Star thing, I, I'm, I'm fairly positive that room doesn't exist anymore. It was like this place in, in Atlantic City at some, some casino. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember what. But, um I don't even recall how that came to be, but I, I ended up being a finalist in that. I didn't win, but it was cool because I got to go down to Atlantic City and perform at a real comedy club and, and had a bunch of friends with me. And that, that was like one of the first times that I felt like I was like actually doing this. And then my junior year was that New Jersey Comedy Festival, which also doesn't exist anymore. But at the time, the idea was that they would go, I think they went to like maybe 10 or 12 different colleges throughout New Jersey. So they went to like, TCNJ and Rutgers and Monmouth and whatever else. And mm-hmm. they had these preliminary rounds and three people from each college made it to the finals. And so I was one of the three finalists for my school. And then in the finals, I, I genuinely feel bad for anybody who had to sit through this show, but it was like 36 finalists each doing five minutes, many of whom were like very, very green, uh, myself included. Right. But I ended up winning that the entire thing. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the prize was a trip to Cancun, which uh, I wasn't really the go to Cancun for spring break sort of guy, but it ended up being fun. And uh, <laughs> and $1,000, which when you're 19 years old, you might as well be a million dollars. Right. That I think that was the moment for me where I was like, okay, like maybe there's something more to this than just being something fun that I'm doing in college. Because it, even even as a junior, having done stand-up in some capacity for a couple of years, it was still something that I, I looked at as just being like, oh, yeah, this is like a fun thing that I'm doing to uh, be creative. But it's, it was not something that at that time I considered as being a career path. And then once I won that competition and started getting more into it, by the time I was graduating, it also coincided with the financial crisis, the, the crash of 2008 and 2009. So graduating right. in 2009, I, I didn't have a lot of great job offers anyway, like quite literally the only job offer that I had was to manage a target. Like I had gone on some interview just to like practice interviewing. And apparently I okay. seemed like I would make a good manager of a target, uh, which that <laughs> quite a, quite an interesting uh, thought of what that timeline would look like if I had gone that route. But point being that it's not as if I was like turning down these amazing, it's not like, Oh, ESPN wants me to, start out for $80,000 a year right. doing whatever. And I'm going to say like, nah, you know, that's all well and good, but I'm going to try to be a comic. 
there weren't there wasn't a lot available to me anyway and so it kind of just occurred naturally where as I was getting more and more into it and starting to get more passionate about it and really realizing that this was something that I loved that it seemed like the right time to take that sort of chance because I wasn't giving up that much anyway. Right. Right. So what did you, like you said, like what did you do to get this, you know, aha moment, so to speak, in around 2009 where it was like you were you were thinking about this potential job and target and maybe what other, you know, like you said, minimal prospective opportunities you had would work. You know, mm-hmm. what led you to saying, okay, I think this is the time i got to try this. You know, I don't want to regret it. I don't want to look back. Um, you know, mm-hmm. what was that moment like for you? What was it like talking with your parents? And then, you know, so to speak, I guess, in a in a way, what was your game plan of how you're going to start to tackle this? Sure. Um, I mean, I've, yeah, I've told this story before on other, on other interviews, but um, during my senior year, like the last semester of my senior year, I had started to do – uh, bringer shows in New York. So mm-hmm. I, they're the sort of, I'm sure you know what that is, but for, for listeners who might not, it's basically, it's something that a new comic will do when they want stage time in, in New York or at a bigger club where essentially the deal is you get to perform for five minutes or 10 minutes uh, if you bring X number of people. So at that right. time I was still early enough in my career and it was like exciting enough for people to watch me that I was able to, to finagle people to come out to shows so maybe once every month or two, I would go up to New York and, and do these like, you know, five, seven minute spots and bring a bunch of people out. And uh, I, I remember I had a spot in the city. Uh, it was like February of that last semester of college. And at the time I was dating somebody and we got into some big argument about something that I don't even remember what it was. It's not important. But the point is, I was like in a, in a terrible mood and I was like, I don't want to, you know, I don't even want to do this show. Like I, 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 but I felt bad because I had all these people coming. So I sucked it up and I took two trains to New York and I, I did this show and, and had a great set and I did, you know, five, six minutes, but it went great. And like, I remember being really aware of the fact that like every moment of that day up to the point that I got on stage, I was miserable. Mm-hmm. And then six minutes later I stepped off of the stage and I felt great. And I was like, if right. that is something that I can feel from doing something for six minutes, that seems powerful enough that I shouldn't ignore it like that that means something and that was kind of this flashpoint where I was like you know what I I think I'm actually going to do this and I didn't know what that would look like I didn't really know it's like to say like oh I'm going to be a comedian um right it's I, I think you have no like concept of what that would even entail or how one would go about making money doing that but this is where my communications background came in because I think I was also very kind of business minded in a way that you wouldn't expect somebody who's 21 to be where I was like, okay, well, I've decided that this is what I'm going to do. So I am going to like make a business plan for myself and do research and, and uh, contact people. And so one of the things that I did at that time was I looked up people who were doing things that I wanted to do. So like I would look up people who seemed like they were touring a lot of clubs and I would send them an email or send them a, a message and like ask if I could pick their brain or I would reach out to somebody who was like big in the college circuit and say, Hey, I'm this, you know, I'm graduating soon and I want to be a comedian. I was wondering if you could give me any advice. And one of the people that I reached out to is somebody who had, uh, had graduated from the same school that I went to. Um, his name is Jay black and he's still, he's still tours. He's I mean, a successful guy. He writes a lot and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's a, he's a headliner and this guy who at the time had like two young kids and was probably incredibly busy 
was gracious enough to get on the phone with me for like an hour. This is when I was still in college and just wow. kind of like break down what his experience had been like, what advice he had for me. Um, I talked to him a lot about the college circuit because in my mind, I was like, well, if I've been performing at my college in front of college students, it would stand to reason that I could be funding in front of other college students. So this seems like a good angle. Um, not really knowing that that's not generally how it works, but at the time I was like, yeah, I could just keep performing at colleges, just colleges that are not right. my own. And <laughs> right. yeah. And so he was like super, super generous with his time and, and talked to me for a while. And, um, at that point I started being very strategic about like, okay, I'm going to like get headshots and I'm going to make sure I get a bunch of, you know, in the days of non-digital stuff, like I'm going to get a bunch of copies of a DVD of a set that I like, and I'm going to start mailing it to people. And I had this, I kind of, yeah. made a PR plan for myself. Um, and, and that, that was kind of the, the basis of it. And then I did, I remember talking to my parents. I don't, I don't specifically remember the conversation. I assume it would have been sometime during that last semester of college where I'm sure there was a lot of talk at that time of like, well, what are you going to do? What's your plan after you graduate? And I remember broaching the subject with them that like, I think this is something that I want to pursue. And as you could expect, they were a little skeptical about it, it, just in the sense of like, not not believing in me, but just being like, okay, like, what is, how will that work? Like, what what is your plan? And ultimately, I think they understood that it was something that I took seriously and really cared about and was going to um, apply myself at. And I think the fact that I was graduating was really the important part. Like, if I had told them right. I was going to drop out of school and move to New York and start doing open mics. I do not think they would have supported that decision at all for good reason. But because I was graduating, I think their attitude was like, yeah, I mean, give it a shot and we support you. And, you know, we, we want you to work really hard at it and let's, let's see where you land. And I think, I don't remember if there was ever a specific timetable, but I do feel like there was kind of that thing of like, yeah, like, you know, choose an amount of time that you think is reasonable to see where this goes and then reassess. Definitely. And yeah, I think that's a great perspective. And I think, like you said, with your parents and probably a lot of kids' parents, they might today even say, hey, you know, at least finish up your college, try it out, and at least then you could potentially have something to fall back on if it doesn't work out. Fortunately mm -hmm. for you, it worked out, um, which is great. Right. So as you said, it was great that Jay Black took the time. I mean, I think that's, again, I don't want to say a misnomer, an outlier, but, you know, I think a lot of people, unfortunately, and I'm sure you've been in this field for a long time now, you know, they really don't either they just don't have the time or, you know, they don't want competition, so they don't go out of their way. But I think that was really cool that you had that moment where he took that time and kind of, you know, directed you a little bit about what you can expect and what are some of the limitations or what you can do. So did Totally, and, and not that I wouldn't have anyway, but, like, I have always made a point to, like, pay that forward. Like, I, yep. I, I genuinely cannot think of any time that I've ever not said yes if somebody has asked for advice. And, and sometimes – it is, it's a little frustrating because it's very vague of like, you know, what can I do to be a comedian? Like, I, like it's, right. it's, it's easier to give advice when someone has specific questions or at least knows enough about things to ask questions that you could answer. Um, but yeah, I, I always try to be like as, as helpful as I can, um, at least with like sharing Definitely. what my experience is and, and that sort of thing. Like, I don't look at it as, oh, well, this per if I give this person advice, they're going to be more successful than me. Like, I think there's enough room for everybody. And, and also, like, what worked for me might not work for somebody else in the same way that what worked right. for Jay Black maybe didn't work for me. It's just, like, all you can share is your experience. 
Exactly. And I think the other side to it, too, is is not just the competition, but, you know, and, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, this, you know, the ego and the narcissism and the grandiosity and that type of stuff that, you know, oh, well, well I'm too big or I don't have time or I don't, you know what I mean? I think it's so, mm-hmm. I'm the same way as you. I mean, if anyone, if I can be of any help to anyone, and that's why I started this podcast, then I'm going to do what I can to, like you said, give you some guidance, give you some feedback. I just think that's that's so relevant and it's just so important mm-hmm. today to try to help each other out. Um, so, yeah, so so how do you eventually get on this, this comedy circuit, you know, tour where you were doing this for, you know, at least six years? Um, just give us a couple of bullet points and then we'll start to, you know, delve into more of when you come out of that and – start to really get involved in other aspects of comedy. Sure. So um, that was part of what I had asked Jay about and his advice to me, or one of his pieces of advice was like, yeah, get, get a press kit together and and get a, you know, DVD and a headshot and some sort of cover letter and whatever resume you have Mm -hmm. in in so much as there's anything to put on it and reach out (laughs) to college agencies and see if they will, um, if they'll represent you or work with you. And he also explained what NACA was, which is the National Association of Campus Activities, which is or, or mm. you know, was, I don't know what will happen moving forward, but, like, there were these huge conferences where you showcase um, as a comedian or musician or, you know, poet or whatever it may be, and you showcase in front of all these college buyers who are there specifically to book entertainment for the next semester or for the next year. So, like, they are coming okay. there with their checkbooks. They want, they want to accomplish this in one weekend to make their lives easier. And the idea that you submit for these things, the, whoever the, uh, you know, board is who makes those decisions picks X number of comics and, and performers. And then these students and student activities people are getting, like, a curated experience where they're watching all these people showcase in some convention center. So I – got headshots done. I got all that stuff together. I mailed out like, I don't know, 20 press kits, like physically mailed these things out and largely didn't hear from people. Or if I did, it was a lot of people saying like, Hey, you know, thanks for reaching out, but you know, we have a full roster. We're not looking for anyone or people being pretty blunt, which was like, Hey, like it's clear that you're pretty new at this. So like keep working at it and reach out again sometime in the future. Um, But there was one agent who was like, yeah, man, like I can tell you're really young, but I think that might be a good fit for colleges. I, I see some potential here and we're not going to represent you, but we are like, we're, we're willing to submit you for these conferences. And then if you actually get into one, um, you know, then we'll, then we'll have that conversation about actually representing you. And the funny thing about it is when I talked to this guy later and I have no idea what he's doing now, he told me that right. the reason he called me was that my headshot was so bad that he thought it was a joke. Like if you've ever seen like the the like DVD cover of Step Brothers where it's that very like it looks like it was taken out of Walmart like that's kind of what my I'll headshot have to look looked that like. Up. Okay. Yeah, and he I don't know if I have a copy of it anywhere, but it was so it was so bad that he thought it was like a bit, and he was like, "All right, this this made me laugh, that's so like I'm going to call this guy and see what's up." So right. like my headshot being terrible is possibly the reason that I got a college. Oh agent. my gosh! Um, you got it. You know what you have to do? Um, you have to save yeah. that. Uh, you have to try to see if you can find it, and then if you write a book or something someday, you can maybe use that oh my you know, either in the book or uh, even like, yeah. But you know what? Wait, there was really just to digress. I can't remember. Oh, he was on Howard Stern, and it, it was I can't remember who it was. It, it definitely was a comedian or writer, and he got he got mm-hmm. like he tried to apply for a job at Taco Bell, 
And evidently, mm-hmm. he couldn't even get a job at Taco Bell. He's like some famous person now. But I think the title of the book was called Not Taco Bell Material. And it was just such a funny – it reminds me of, like, what you're saying. I don't know if I'm making a yeah. perfect analogy. But it's no, almost no, like no, no. I, this really yeah. weird moment, but it has this huge impact on your life. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just it, thought like, that that was – It's this yeah. thing where, like, if I, if I had had a better quality headshot, this guy might not have called me. It, it's one of those, right. like, weird <laughs> – serendipitous things that, that happens. But um, in any case, so the, the, the whole way it worked was that in order to even, the whole thing's kind of a racket if I'm being honest, but like in order to even apply for these conferences, you have to have like bought a booth at the conference and you have to have paid all this money that if you are a, an artist by yourself, you just could not afford. So you're kind of forced to go through an agency. And so I would pay the submission fee. They would have already paid all the booth fees. And then you submit for all these okay. conferences. And I got into one like less than a year out of college. So I graduate wow. May of 2009 and I get into a showcase that I do in March of 2010. So I am 22 years old. I've like just graduated college and I go to this conference. It was in like East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And I showcase, I do, you know, whatever bits I had at the time. And mm-hmm. I book like seven or eight college gigs. And so I go from being somebody who has, like, never made more than $10 doing comedy at some, you know, coffee house somewhere. Bringer show. To all of a sudden right. booking or, right. college gigs. Yeah, or, or, yeah, or, like, paying to do comedy, let, let alone getting paid for it. Um, I go from that to all of a sudden, like, I'm still living with my parents, and now I'm getting paid $1,300 to do an hour at a college. And I just, like, wow. couldn't, I couldn't believe that it was happening. And... I really at that time was largely operating on charisma and, and bullshit. I don't know if I'm supposed to curse. So tell me if I'm not, but um, that's okay. No, it no, was, that's, that's okay. yeah, I like, I really just was kind of skating by on just being likable because I sure as hell did not have an hour of material, but those right. shows led, to, I mean, I was, I was very relatable. I was, I was basically a college kid myself. So all of my material at that time was about that experience. And so I think people just liked me. And I also was not somebody who was ever going to, like, get a school in trouble in the way that, like, if you book a city comic at a college, they're probably going to want to do their city act, and you're going to have people offended or people complaining. And I think just by virtue of what I was talking about at that time, I was, like, a very easy sell to be like, yeah, here's this, like, young guy who is, like, you know, handsome and likable, and he's not going to offend anybody, and he's cheap for, for their standards. So that kind of was the beginning of it. And then the agency started working with me. I had some very early success in getting into these conferences and they work in such a way where like, if you have a really good set, you might be good for a year. Like there, there was one that I did in, uh, it was like the Northeast region in uh, like the Hartford convention center in Connecticut. And I had, mm-hmm. I just had a really good set. And from that one 10 or 15 minute showcase, I booked like 50 college gigs for the next year. Wow, so these were incredible. like very, very, very high pressure situations because you're performing in these huge auditoriums and you know that your ability to make a living for the next year is very much based on how you do in those next 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Wow, incredible. So, I mean, again, you had a run for about six, seven years doing this, um, which is great. So what happens as yeah, you start I would say to from transition? Like 20, 2010, yeah. No, no just, yeah, I was going to say it was basically from started in like 2010. And then I would say the, the peak years of me doing that were like 
probably 2012, 2013, 2014. Uh, 2013, I, I performed at like 80 colleges across like, I don't know, 30 states. It was ridiculous. Oh um, and that was a wild thing too, because like I made more money that year than I've made since then. And I'm like, I'm so much better now than I was at that time, but it's just the nature of like the sort of, of gigs that I, that I was doing. Um, but to answer your question and what I think you're going to ask, which is like, how did I kind of transition out of that or, or why did I transition mm-hmm. out of it? Um, it was a combination of feeling like I had kind of, I had done what I could do there. Like there, mm-hmm. there are only so many schools to perform at. Um, sure. There were places that would like bring me back every year or, or whatever, but like at a certain point you're seeing the same people, you're, you're performing for the same market. And um, to be honest, it also kind of started to like bum me out. Like the first couple of years I was doing it, I was in this honeymoon phase where I was like, I can't believe I'm like getting paid to, to do comedy, right. I get to travel, like in the way that now if I'm like on a plane going to a gig, the last thing that I want to do is mention to anybody that I'm a comedian because I just don't want to have the conversation. At that time, I was like <laughs> looking for someone to ask me because I was like, yeah, I'm a comedian and I'm like getting paid to fly to Oklahoma to, to do a gig. It was, sure. you know, I couldn't believe my luck. And, um, but what happened was you go to more and more of those conferences and you start to see that it kind of is like a golden handcuff situation. Uh, in mm-hmm. the sense that, like, you can get very, very comfortable in that world and realize that, like, yeah, if you if you ingratiate yourself into that community, you can make six figures doing comedy and live pretty comfortably and, and have a, a good life. However, you are never going to do anything other than that. Like, the ceiling for right. you if you do that is that you eventually age out of colleges or you're like the, you know, the kind of Steve Buscemi meme of, like, hey there, fellow high school kids, like, there's a lot of that sort of thing where it's, you know, some guy who's 42 years old still trying to wear like a, a rock band T-shirt and chucks so that he seems relatable, right. taking his wedding, taking his wedding ring off so that he can, you know, seem, seem more, more relatable to the, to the youth. And it's either that or people who like quite literally have not changed their act in five years. And right. these people who, when you first saw them, you were like just enamored with like, wow, they're so good. And then you see them three years later and they're doing the exact same material. And you're like, oh my God, aren't you mm-hmm. sad? Like this just seems, it just it's sad. And I don't even mean that in a condescending way. Like it's just, no. I, it started to make me feel like I did not want to fall into that trap of just being the college guy. And also when I started coming around New York, there was like a stink on me. Like people did not feel positive towards comics who tour colleges because they're thought of as hacks and they're thought of as people who like do very kind of, easy, oh, wow. uh, you know, low hanging fruit sort of material and have this very like niche, like you're, you know, you're basically thought of as like a clown who goes and entertains a bunch of 18 right. year olds. And as I got to New York as someone who was already touring colleges and started to see the caliber of comedy that was happening here, even in like dingy basements from people who like, don't make any money doing comedy. I think it was a real wake up call for me where I was like, Oh, I've been succeeding in an incredibly narrow lane within comedy. But if I ever actually want to be respected as a comic or thought of as a comic versus like thought of as some guy who does colleges, I, I can't keep doing this forever. Right. So, and again, like you said, I think, and you seem like someone who likes that challenge, you know, you like to grow as a person. You're not someone who just wants Mm -hmm. to stay, like you said, in this one lane and just kind of do that for the rest of your life, so to speak. So, so you move out of that transition and you move to New York in around 2015, right? 
And what are you initially, you know, doing to get involved in, you know, like you said, a different aspect of the scene, so to speak, and get out of the college mm-hmm. world? Yeah, so I moved I moved there a bit sooner. So basically in I guess it's it's ten years ago this year that I moved okay. like out of my parents' house. And I'm so in twenty eleven I moved to Hoboken, so I was like city adjacent. But at that time I was yeah. still I was like dipping my toe into the New York world, but I was still doing a lot of college gigs. Um and then uh, a couple of years later I moved to Astoria. So I've been I've been in New York for like eight years. And when I first got here, it was really just a lot of like trying to go out as much as I could and trying to um, meet people and, and do open mics and, and really kind of like embrace how awful it was going to be. Like, I think there were a couple, <laughs> a couple weeks early on where I was very defensive and I would be like at these open mics just doing horribly. And there was this part of me that was like, Oh, what do these people know? Like they don't even make money doing this. And I'm, you know, I'm off making thousands of dollars at colleges like they're they're just jealous and like I I had that for like a week and then I think I kind of looked at myself in the mirror and I was like no you know what they actually just are good at comedy and you're not and you need to figure out how to how to do that Um, and the biggest thing that helped me was that I was able to start co-hosting a weekly show um, at Beauty Bar, which is this little like dive bar um, on like 14th between second and third. And that was an okay. opportunity for me to meet a ton of people because we would be booking comics every week. That also was that that becomes its own kind of currency where like you book somebody on your show, they, they book you on theirs. And so I kind mm-hmm. of like built it out from that where I was getting I was getting better uh, because part of it is like you're just around people who are so good and so driven that if you're a driven person as well, you're, you're, you're going to try to like meet people at their level um, and just doing, doing stand up all the time. Like I, I just, it became kind of that cliche of like, Oh, I feel like I have to do this every night or multiple times every night. And it became an obsession for a while. But I think without that, I wouldn't have gotten to a point where I was respected by anyone, but it took, it took right. years, I would say. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. that's what you guys say, that you got to keep at this, too. I mean, it's not something, and I think, you know, you when I read some of this stuff about you, you know, you reiterated, even when you got out of college, you didn't anticipate, oh, I'm going to be on Letterman tomorrow night, or I'm going to have a number one sitcom TV show. And I think just having, you know, that, that groundedness about you, I think that is so important mm-hmm. if you want to get involved in pretty much any type of entertainment world, so to speak, um, you know, industry, yeah. to have that type of equality. So, yeah, pull right. a little bit. In 2017, you you put out your, your debut album, which uh, became number mm-hmm. one on the comedy iTunes charts. And it was uh, – thank you for sharing it with me. It was just incredibly funny. Sure. Um, some oh, of the highlights so I loved about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the one thing that was really funny, too, because I'm into heavy – not heavy music, but I do, like, new metal bands and hard rock and stuff like that. You know, you mentioned something about a kid from high school saying, he, you know, he couldn't believe that he – I had a polo t-shirt for this show. What were those? Just out of curiosity, you remember the band yeah. that you were performing? No, to no, I have no, I have uh, no okay. memory of it. They were very much like local New Jersey bands. Oh, okay, um, that okay, I gotcha. some reason, So it wasn't like Metallica uh, or, in the or something. No, 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 right. no. God, no. It was, it was whatever, whatever the worst version of like a local heavy metal band that's formed in somebody's right. mom's basement would be. Oh gosh, um, yeah. but yeah, but such a great album. Really, really good Thank stuff. You. Um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about. I know that you had an opportunity um, to meet Gary Goldman, and and he had been a. Mm-hmm. It seems like a you know I don't want to say a pivotal moment 
moment, but it was definitely someone who you've spoken very highly of. And, you know, how did he impact you? Um, and, and, and talk a little bit about your album where people can pick it up and we'll then get back to some other stuff. Sure. Yeah. So I, so I had actually recorded other, I, I, the, the hubris involved in this is, is shocking to me, but I, I recorded an album as a senior in college, which is just wild to me. Like it's still, I'm sure there are copies of it that exist somewhere. I don't want anyone to listen to it. I'm not proud of it, but it is something <laughs> that happened. And then I, I did like a DVD a couple of years later, but yes, for all intents and purposes, um, that was one of the good ones was the, the first like actual album that I released. And, and to me, it was just this, thing of like I was getting to a point where I felt really good about where I was at as a comic I was getting more established in uh in the New York scene I had all this material like some of which I've been doing at colleges a lot of a lot of stuff I developed in New York where I was like I really love this material I'm also getting kind of sick of it and I think this would be a good moment to like have this as as this like moment in time of, of stuff that I really mm-hmm. want people to hear but I'm maybe not super excited about doing anymore and the timing just seemed seemed right. Um, and as far as Gary Goldman is concerned, he I had recorded the album, I guess, I'm trying to think of the timing of all this, but um, he's somebody who I just, like, admire a ton. I, I think he is, is one of the most brilliant joke writers and just one of the most brilliant minds in comedy. And I had an opportunity to feature for him in uh, – in Vermont, which is where I ended mm-hmm. up recording my album at the at the Vermont Comedy Club in Burlington. And he just was someone who I was like super intimidated to even be in the same room as and was just unbelievably generous with his time. And and what's even more amazing about it now is that having seen his latest special, uh the the Great Depression, which is brilliant, um, when I featured for him, that was when he was like really in the throes of like really severe depression and um, the fact that he still made a point to like he offered to meet up with me and like he bought me lunch and we just sat and talked about comedy for hours and was just exceedingly kind and generous and had very like laudatory things to say about my work Um, and and it just I don't even remember the timing of it. I don't even remember if it was before or after the album uh, was recorded, but I just remember it being something that I was like, man, like if, if Gary Goldman thinks that I'm good, then I think I'm probably ready to record it now. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's so cool. Yeah. Just again, having another one of those moments where, you know, someone really is supportive um, of you in, in the industry. That's a, that's a huge name. Um, so that's, that's great. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. Really cool. Um, and I don't know how comfortable you feel because it was interesting you brought up just Gary Goldman, you know, struggling, having some depression that he was dealing with. And you can feel comfortable, of course, sharing whatever you want. And if you don't want to talk about it, mm-hmm. that's fine. I know in, you know, in 2019, there had been something where you mentioned going through some really difficult personal issues that potentially mm-hmm. had impacted your ability to work and was also costly for you. Do you you know, do you want to share some of that or, you know, at least highlight what was going on and, and how yeah, you were able I mean, to cope can, can and, and move on? Yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I, I may be uh, somewhat, somewhat obtuse about it, but um, yeah, I mean, I, okay. I got, a, a, I got divorced in 2019 um, and it was really, just really unpleasant. Not, not that it would ever be like a fun experience, but it was like particularly mm-hmm. uh, painful and, 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 uh, and rough and, um, it's interesting timing as we're doing this interview today because I have 
uh, a Just for Laughs showcase tonight. And the, you know, part of my set tonight is, is kind of highlighting how like drastically my life has changed since the last time I was doing one of those sets because um, two years ago, like things really started to like fall apart in a, in a really bad way in, in the spring of that year. And it coincided with when I was auditioning for Just for Laughs. That's all right. Um, and a lot of my set and a lot of what you heard on that album was me talking about being married and being, you know, happily married. Yes. And right. it was this very surreal experience where I did a Just for Laughs showcase in 2019 where my set was like mostly material about like, hey, I'm like married and it's great and I'm so happy with the reality that I was like essentially separated at that time. But I did not have the ability or time to, like, come up with a new act about what was actually going on. And so for a couple months of that year, I mean, there was a time where I, like, almost stopped doing stand-up altogether um, just because I was trying to, like, keep my life in one piece. But the other thing that was tough was that I am somebody who's, like, very autobiographical in my my stand-up, or I've gotten to that point, and I think that... Um, because of the fact that so much of my material was about my marriage and about being married, I just felt like a fraud for, for a large chunk of that year when things were really tenuous. And I was like, it was this weird world of like going out and doing shows where I'm like talking about being, being happily married and then coming home to a very unhappy marriage. And uh, it was, it was very like taxing mentally. And so once we actually like it was decided that we were getting divorced and then kind of things were in motion that way, I started talking about it on stage and my, my move, whatever my opinions are of like how things were handled, I'm not the sort of person who is going to like disparage anyone. And so my angle was like, I am going to talk about this, but I'm going to talk about it in a very personal way in terms of like how I feel, how it affected me. um, And, and not like be, be nasty about it, but just like talk about what Mm -hmm. that experience was. And it was a moment for me where I remembered how much I love comedy and how important it can be. Like, I don't, I don't know how I would have gotten through that time in my life without comedy as an outlet. And like, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to approach it as like, Oh, I'm going to like go do therapy on stage because I was also doing therapy with a therapist, but like it was, it was incredibly cathartic to me. And it also, Mm Um, it was the first time I had felt like myself in a really long time. And as someone who wants to be truthful on stage, or at least, you know, truthful to, to the extent that anything in comedy is truthful, I, it, I, I did not feel comfortable um, misrepresenting my life in the way that I had been. And what's interesting about it now is that at that time a couple of years ago, I was doing this incredibly like raw material in real time, like as it was happening about how sad I was and, and what was going on. And now post COVID or in, in so much as you can say post COVID, but like coming out of it sure. in doing this set tonight, I'm doing a lot of that material, but I've also had to recontextualize it to make it honest to who I am in this moment, which is uh, I'm not sad anymore. Like, yes, it's still painful to think about those memories, but like, I am happy most of the time and I'm, uh, I'm dating somebody and I'm very happy with her. And I, and I think for me to go on stage tonight and act like, you know, woe is me. I got divorced and everything's terrible. 
would be as much of a misrepresentation as two years was uh, two years ago was when I was like, yeah, everything is great. So I think at right. any given moment for me, it's just important to be as truthful as I can be to where I'm to where I'm at. Also because I, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm an actor too, but like I'm not such a good actor that I can really sell something that's not true to me. And that's, that's what it felt like a couple of years ago was that I was like putting on a good face and quite literally acting my way through a set that I knew was just not true anymore. Yeah, no, I mean, thank you for sharing. I'm sorry to hear about that. But I think, like you said, it also comedy for you. And I think me personally, I'm not a stand-up comedian, but that's what I use to cope in life. I mean, I use some really mm-hmm. dark humor sometimes to deal with stuff. Um, and again, I yeah. think something just to let you know that I love about your comedy is how it's autobiographical. That's what, you know, drove me to be interested. I was like, oh, I really want to bring him on. I want to hear about his, his life story mm-hmm. and his history and how he got involved. And yeah, I mean, that's just a compliment to you. Something I really enjoy about, you know, mm-hmm. your stand up you. and how I can appreciate that. Like you said, if you're not feeling it and then you're not truly representing who you are at that time, how, how much of a struggle that can be too. So thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that. And I'm glad to hear that yeah, sure. things are going well for you now and, and you're, you know, you're happy with the relationship you're in. So that's great. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, look, it's always, yeah. that stuff is always going to be a part of who you are. Um, but I think sure. that um, the, the the goal is to try to like, let it like better you as a person and, and like make your, your future relationships and, and the way you live the rest of your life, like, better as a result of having made it through something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So um, while we're talking still about comedy and writing, I mean, again, some highlights that you've had too is, you know, doing some appearances on Comedy Central and the MTV Girl Code and BET. So again, how do you get those types of opportunities? Saturday Night Live Weekend Update, you've done some writing for that. I mean, some really great Mm -hmm. stuff on your resume. Thanks. I mean, yeah, some, some stuff is just like right place, right time. Some stuff is, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a lot of it is through like connections that you make from something else that leads to this, that leads to that. Like it's, it's all that sort of like chain of event sort of stuff. Um, as far as weekend update is concerned, I like, I don't want to misrepresent my involvement with that, but it was, there was uh, a sure. season, I think it was their 40, 40th season. So it's a few years ago by now, but at that time they had a freelance writing staff and Colin Jost, um, I think it was his first year doing update he did our show. He did the the bar show that I ran in the city. And I knew that that was something that existed, this like freelance writing staff. And I kind of strategically made sure that I performed before him so that he could see me and, you know, see that I was funny. And then after he did mm-hmm. his set, I, I approached him and, and respectfully uh, just kind of asked him, I was like, Hey, you know, I, I hope I'm not overstepping, but I know that there's a freelance staff for, for weekend update. And I was curious, how that worked or if there was any sort of like application process, um, you know, if you could give me any information about that. And he was very nice. And he was like, yeah, like, you know, here's my email. I thought you were funny. Um, you know, I'll send me an email and I'll connect you with the, the person who's in charge of that. And, um, you know, he was like, I don't really have any control over it, but you'll, you can like do kind of a writing packet. And if they, if they like your stuff, then they'll add you to the, to this, to the freelance staff. So that's kind of how it worked. I, I reached out to Colin. He responded, um, connected me with the guy who was in charge of, of the writing staff. And then um, I got to do that for, for a year, which was really cool. Um, especially because like to that point, so much of my writing was just a writing for myself. So it was kind of a, an excellent opportunity to see 
essentially how to write for late night. Like it's, it's a lot of that mm-hmm. sort of like almost mathematical formulas of like, here is the setup. And then like there are X, uh, you know, there's however many different ways you can go with that joke. But that's kind of how it was, was like they would give you the first half of the joke. So they would, on Monday of that week, they would send you all these prompts that were like, you know, a man in Ohio was arrested today after, you know, found, after he was found right. owning 40 tigers or whatever it was. And then that was where <laughs> it would stop. And then your job was to write okay. the second half of the joke. But also Interesting. what was important was like knowing what everybody's voices were. So it's like, okay, it's not, it's not what I would say. It's like, okay, how would Colin deliver that joke? Right. Or I think I don't think Michael Che was on at that time. I think it was like Cecily Strong was the other was the other anchor. But so I got to do that. Um, some e cards I, I got to do just through a connection that I had in comedy, um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, that's that's more almost like internet memes and that sort of thing. But it was it was cool doing uh, doing a bit of that. And then the acting stuff, um, yeah, it was through some of it was like through management that I had at the time. Um, the one thing that I did on Comedy Central a couple of years ago was through a director that I had met being essentially like an extra on something. Like I don't, I've never done a lot of background work or extra work, but occasionally if something like seems particularly fun, I'm willing to Mm -hmm. do it because I, I look at it as an opportunity to like meet people who are involved in stuff that I want to be involved in. And so the, uh, the director of that was somebody that I met doing, they had these, uh, these series of shorts on, on Comedy Central Digital called Mini, Mini Mocks. So it was very much like a Christopher okay. Guest sort of thing where there were these like short, like one or two minute mockumentaries. And so okay. I did a couple of those and the director got to know me through that. And I think he reached out to my agent um, and had a couple things that he wanted me to, to work on with him. So that's how I did some of the Comedy Central stuff. The, uh, the MTV thing, that was just like a sketch on Girl Code that I did that was through mm-hmm. a manager that I worked with at the time. But yeah, I mean, some of it's through auditioning, some of it's through people just like getting to know you and and knowing what you're capable of. And uh, the BET thing was even more random because it was actually a game show that I was on that was hosted by Dion Cole. Um, that It was kind of cool. So Dion Cole was the host. Tiffany Haddish was like the, you know, man on the street, woman on the street okay. sort of person, like correspondent. And then uh, Wanda Sykes was the producer, so she was there on set. Oh, so, wow. Uh, nothing really resulted That's from cool. it, but it was a cool, like we, I flew out to L.A. with a close friend of mine, and uh, we got to, got to do that game show. That's great. No, I mean, congrats. I mean, so yeah. many cool accomplishments that you've had. Yeah, really cool. Thank you. So, yeah, just to, and then to tie in, so all this wonderful stuff is going on and you're really moving, and then, unfortunately, the pandemic hits us. Um, and we don't mm-hmm. have to spend a ton of time on that, but just, you know, give us some highlights. I mean, you were able to creatively find other outlets, you know, using Zoom and doing various types mm-hmm. of, you know, comedy events. You know, just tell us a little bit about the challenges with that and again, the silver lining, so to speak, with some of these other opportunities that you were able to um, get on board with. And then hopefully mm-hmm. now, like we said, we're slowly coming out of it, which is, which is a great thing for you and everyone else in the uh, entertainment industry. Yeah. I mean, I think I, like, I want to be careful to, to, to like, acknowledge how wildly like privileged I am that like when COVID happened, I had like a place to go and a roof over my head mm-hmm. and was like, okay, financially. And, and all of that stuff that is like more important than anything. And also that, um, you know, knock on wood to this point, my, my immediate family has been okay. But um, I think looking at it from a like 
how does this affect me personally standpoint, there was, there was a part of me, a big part of me last year that was like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. Like, because to right. have come out of what was such a horrific year in 2019 personally, and then just mm-hmm. be coming out of that. Like there were, there were things that both in my career were like super exciting that were happening. Um, and even personally, like I, 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 I was mindful of like kind of not, not getting myself out there too quickly when I was like this shell of myself. Uh, and so I really hadn't started dating or anything until early last year. So I was like just kind of starting to feel like myself again. And then of course everything stops. And um, yeah, of course I, I felt cheated. And, and I think that for a lot of people, you know, it's kind of that cliche now of, of you know, 2020 was apparently going to be everybody's year and then COVID got in the way of it. But I did, I did right. feel like there was some like really strong momentum in, in terms of, opportunities that I was seeing that just hadn't been there before. And that was one of the silver linings of, of my divorce. If I want to look at it that way is that when you're married or when you're in a relationship, you do, unless you're a jerk and you just don't care, you do have to try to balance those two things. And all of a sudden having that huge part of my life not exist anymore was this opportunity for me to like really pour myself into my work. And I was starting to see the results of that. And um, yeah, it was, it was challenging, but I, I think that if there's anything that I'm most proud of in the past year plus, it's been like how adaptable I have been in the sense of like mm-hmm. not sticking my nose up at doing shows on zoom or, um, or, or trying to just be cre- creative in other ways, trying to embrace like doing more like silly videos or, or sketches or writing more or getting more involved with the podcast that I have or, or like doing the things that I can control and the things that I can do. And I think obviously we're all extremely lucky that the internet is what it is because like, can you imagine what COVID would have been like if it had happened in, you know, Oh my gosh. Right. 1990 instead of 2020. Exactly. And like we all would have just been inside with nothing, no way of really reaching yeah. each other other than a phone call. So there would have been a lot of busy tones, I imagine, at that time. And um, so, yeah, and, and, and the other thing is, looking at it now, I think that me kind of diving into my work head first was a way for me to, to put off dealing with some of the stuff that I needed to emotionally. And you can sure. only hide from that so long when all of a sudden every single day is the same and you're all of a sudden living with your parents again. And I, I think the thing that I've taken away most from this past, whatever it is, 14, 15 months is that I don't know that I had a particularly good work-life balance. And I think that that's an issue that a lot of artists have, which is that you, you, you make yourself feel bad constantly. You're, you're, you're always, there's always this like voice in your head that's like, yeah, someone's working harder than you. And if you, you know, mm-hmm. you take a night off or if you go hang out with a friend or if you go to the movies or whatever, you're falling behind. Um, I was talking to somebody about it recently who, who said it in a really interesting way. He was like, yeah, it was like we all thought that there was like this like big brother of comedy surveilling us all the time and that if you took a night off and didn't do an open mic, you know, someone's going to report on r- report you and then interesting. you weren't right. going to accomplish your dreams. And having had this break from the grind and from the hustle uh, to to kind of be more of a normal person – I I'm coming out of this still feeling very excited about doing stand up and acting and, and all of the things that I do, 
but also realizing that like I need to set some boundaries for myself that allow right. me to be a normal person. And I think there are some people right now who, as we're coming out of the pandemic, their, their first instinct is like, I'm going to like hit up every booker and every comedy club. And I'm going to like try to fill my schedule. I'm going to do stand up 10 times a night because I, and, and make up for lost time. And I respect mm-hmm. that. And I, I'll, I'll always respect that hustle, but sitting here in early June, sure. I want to do stand up and I want to start doing a lot of shows again, but I don't want to be out seven nights a week doing multiple shows. And my, my priorities right now are that I want to go visit friends and family that I haven't seen in two years and make time for that before I make time for, you know, going to Albany to do a a feature set, you know? Right. Yeah. I think think you bring up some really good points. I feel, yeah, I feel, I feel, oh, you always feel guilty for saying that when you're talking about uh, uh, something that has, had a, a horrific effect on so many people. Um, but yeah, I think it is a break that I never would have given myself. And mm-hmm. in so much as you can be grateful for, for what this past year has been, I'm, I'm grateful that it like forced me into uh, maybe being a little more introspective than I, than I would have. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important point. Like you said, you're looking at it from your individual situation. Everyone has their own situations and, you know, reasons they do what they do or look at it from their perspective but yeah I think being able to reflect like you said and be more introspective and learn about yourself and what you need I think that's huge because if you kept going on you know doing the grind right you might have mm-hmm. noticed maybe at some point you would have said to yourself I can't do this anymore and how just dis- you know how disappointing would that be with all of your talent to to stop right you know what I mean so I think yeah I think it's mm-hmm. it, for you it had its negative moments but it also had um, some positive aspects to it to help you out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, but I'm glad that we're slowly but surely hopefully coming along so that, you know, you and everyone else can start getting back out there and, and doing, you know, what you're passionate about and uh, giving us comedy and music and whatever it is that we've, you know, we've been missing for so long. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's, been, it's been nice to, to get back out there a little bit over the past month or two. Um, mm-hmm. You know, once I, once I was fully, once I was fully vaccinated, I was like, okay, like now I feel um, yep. that it's at least like reason, reasonable to even consider starting to do that. But what's amazing is that in, in some of the shows I was doing in the past week or two, getting ready for this just for laugh showcase, I think I, I thought that I would be like really scared and, and be like, I don't want to like be in a room with people again. Uh, but it's amazing how quickly you start to feel comfortable again once you're in your element. That's great. At least that's been that's my great. Yeah, I mean, this far. is hard. I mean, we've all, and again, everyone, we're not going to get into, you know, politics and things like that, but I know everyone has their own, you know, perspectives on whatever it is, vaccine and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that's great that you can feel, start to feel comfortable. Um because mm-hmm. I know for some people it's going to be rough, you know, you're so used to being cooped up and isolated. And if you are really conservative when it comes to, you know, your viewpoints, I'm not saying conservative politically, I'm just saying in terms of taking care of yourself and not being around people because mm-hmm. you don't want to expose yourself or others. I think it could be challenging for some other people, but hopefully with, with due time, we will slowly get back to uh, some type of normalcy, you know? Yeah, and I think you got to hope that there's some sort of like renaissance that comes out of this. I think that people are absolutely like starved for entertainment and for mm-hmm. and for live entertainment specifically. I think we all miss going to concerts and and going to comedy clubs yeah. and and all of that. And and um, I I'm hopeful that that bodes well for 
the entertainment industry. We'll we'll see, but like I have no doubt that people are going to be very excited to go back to Broadway, and it seems like people are already mm-hmm. excited to be in comedy clubs and and even last year and doing a lot of the like outdoor shows that were certainly challenging when you're performing sure. in like broad daylight without a microphone. People were great audiences because I think they were just so appreciative of the fact that there was anything happening and anything for for them exactly. to be entertained by. Yeah. No. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, um, yeah, let's start wrapping things up, Adam. I mean, thank you so much. I mean, you shared so much interesting stuff and it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, no, thank yeah, you for where me. people can, absolutely. Yeah. Show your social media sites where people can find you, your website and all that good stuff. And then, um, mm-hmm. of course, you're always welcome back on in the future when you have some new stuff coming out, whether it's a new album or some other stuff in the works, you're more than welcome to come back on and promote yourself. Thank you. Um, yeah, every so everything for me is, is pretty consistent. Uh, it's just my name, so it's Adam Mamawala, which is not, not the easiest name to share when you're on stage and, and hope that people can figure out how to spell it, but I'm sure uh, there will be links. But I'm uh, it's M-A-M-A-W-A-L-A is my last name. Um, I'm at Adam Mamawala on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my website is the same, adammamawala.com. Um, my album you can get anywhere you get albums it's on Spotify. If you have uh, a subscription, you can get it on iTunes. I'm also going to put it up on Bandcamp, um, which is something I found out about recently that like all the money goes to the artists. Uh, they have like a thing like, one, oh, cool. like mm-hmm. the first Friday of the month or something like that. Um, anybody who buys an album, like 100% of it goes to, goes to the artist. Um, but yeah, beyond that, uh, I think, I think that's mostly it. I don't have anything to promote too much other than uh, the, the podcast that I'm, that I co-host for for those of you who are into sports or or want to check something out that's like sports adjacent. Uh, But yeah, that's, I think that's, that's all I got. Okay, great. Yeah. So, um, and just so you know, if people can turn, tune into the live interview today, there will be, you know, podcasts available to stream and download after our interview. So feel free to, if you want to promote it so people can uh, check out the interview at their convenience. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Adam. Cool. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. You're an exceptional talent, and I'm really looking forward to continuing to follow you and see what you're up to. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Carrie. Okay, great. Have a great day. All right, you too. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, everyone. Adam Mamawala, comedian, podcaster, writer. And uh, what a great interview with him. Uh, Please check it out if for some reason you couldn't tune in or you tuned in late to the interview. Uh, There will be a podcast available to download and stream on iTunes, iHeartRadio, and other major digital sites after we are done. So, again, thanks for tuning in. Follow The Carrie Edelman Show. I'm on Facebook. You could also befriend me if you're interested. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Carrie Edelman. Um, in the process of setting up some more interviews. So please uh, follow me and you will see the post of who's coming up. And again, I have about, sorry, I'm stumbling. I have about over 250 interviews now with national comedians, um, musicians, writers, journalists, even illustrators now, cartoonists I'm incorporating. Yeah, so please check them out. I really home in on a, a unique, different type of interview. Um, they are long, but you're really going to get a cool experience of what these people's um, lives are like and, and how they got involved in their professions. And it's not a cookie-cutter interview. I really take some time to do my research. So so check them out. Download it, follow it, and, uh, you know, give me some comments about what your thoughts are. Thank you so much, and have a great day.